This morning our text is found in Isaiah chapter 9. And I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't, you'll find a Bible on the chair in front of you. And as you, I ask you to join me there in Isaiah 9, as you do, that Bible that's in your hands is divided in testaments, books, chapters, and verses. I think all of you know there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. In the New Testament, 27 books for a total of 66 books of the Bible. But does anybody know how many chapters there are in the Bible? I want to take a guess. Yes, sir. That is exactly right. <laughs> 1,189. 78% of those chapters are in the Old Testament. 22% of them are in the New Testament. And so then the next question, which we'll ask Jonathan, who has all the answers, is how many verses are in the Bible? You don't know. Okay, good. I'm glad to know that. I'll tell you. Now you'll know this. There are 24,145 in the Old Testament, 7,957 in the New Testament for a total of 31,000. 102. And no, I did not count them as part of my prep for the sermon this morning, but a total of 31,102. And this morning, we're going to look at just one, one of the 31,000 plus verses in the Bible. If we preached one chapter of the Bible every Sunday, it would take us almost 23 years to get through the Bible. If we take just one verse every Sunday, it will take us nearly 600 years to get through the Bible. So it's unusual to pick just one verse, but it's, it's not unprecedented. There are some really rich and powerful verses that require our full attention. In fact, here in Isaiah chapter 9, we come to verse 6. It's a familiar verse to you, and I've seen not just a sermon preached on Isaiah 6, but I've seen an entire Advent series on Isaiah 6, taking each of the titles of Christ, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, as an Advent series. Many of you have underlined or highlighted Isaiah 9-6 in your Bible. Some of you have memorized Isaiah 9-6, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But that's not our text for this morning. We're looking at the preceding verse, Isaiah 9, 5. And here I suspect that none of you have underlined or highlighted verse 5. None of you, I don't think, Jonathan, have you memorized Isaiah? Okay, nobody has memorized Isaiah 9, 5. In fact, you've probably never heard a sermon preached on Isaiah 9, 5. Uh, Joseph Mannion said to me, this is going to be the best sermon I've ever heard on Isaiah 9, 5. So at least I have that going for me this morning. Let me, let me read this single verse to you, Isaiah 9, 5. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. A couple of months ago, Rob uh, texted me and said, hey, would you be willing to preach sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas? And I looked at my calendar. We arrived on this date, Sunday, December 18th. Then a few weeks later, he sent me another text and said, did I give you the text for your sermon? I said, no, dot, 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 question mark. He said, well, uh, we're taking one verse at a time in Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. Ben has Isaiah 9, 2. Jonathan has Isaiah 9, 3. Buzz has Isaiah 9, 4. I have Isaiah 9, 5. And Rob has reserved for himself Isaiah <laughs> 9, 6 and 7. Of 31,102 verses to choose from, somehow I got this one. We joked a little bit back and forth in our, our texting about uh, this passage and the challenges that it presented. Uh, part of that uh, text message included me suggesting that we start for the first time here at Citizens children sermons. Some of you have been to uh, churches where they invite all the kids up front to sit down, give a little illustration, and then what's the meaning of that illustration? So I told Rob, I envision inviting all the kids up. <laughs> bringing my army boots and maybe my dad's old marine uniform that I'll roll in blood, uh, a fire pit, and we'll burn them. Merry Christmas, kids. The message is clear. Well, that was all fun. Then the reality set in. What am I going to do with these verses? So I turned to a trusted source. Uh, I'm a big fan of John MacArthur. John MacArthur has preached for over 50 years. Uh, he is known as a gifted expository preacher. He preaches verse by verse, chapter by chapter. He has preached on every verse of the New Testament. Over 3,500 sermons that he's preached. That is, by the way, more than one a week uh, for over 50 years. He's probably touched 10,000 verses. So surely there's some help here, maybe a nugget or two that I can pick up from John MacArthur. And I was relieved to find that he had actually spoken on Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Great. I got the transcript. Verse 1, several paragraphs. Verse 2, several paragraphs. Okay. Verse 5. And I'm going to quote to you what he said for verse 5. Quote, then in verse 5, which we won't take time to consider, I'll just read without comment. What? Wow, I'm really in trouble. Maybe, maybe I should just take his, his advice. We've read it, and this will be the shortest sermon in the history of Citizens Church, without comment. Um, we're not going to do that. What we will do is first, let's look at this passage in its context in Isaiah. And let's pray, because we'll need the Lord's help for this passage. So let's, let me read for you. The passage here in Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have not increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every book, chapter, and verse. We thank you that your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be made complete for every good work. And so this morning, Father, as we focus on your word, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what your word speaks to us. We pray that the gospel will be revealed, that your spirit will work in the lives of those who don't know you, that light will shine, and that we'll hear the good news of the coming of our Lord to bring victory and salvation for every one who believes. And so, Father, we pray that in this church and in the churches that surround us here in Westerville, in the churches in Ohio and in the United States and across the world, we pray, Father, that this gospel message will be proclaimed, that there will be receptive hearts because of your work in people's lives, and that those who you have called will come to you in glory because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Alistair Begg often reminds us that we need to read our Bibles backwards to gain a full appreciation and an understanding of the Bible's message. You see, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. Let me repeat that. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In Acts, Jesus is preached. Through the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. 
So here in Isaiah 9, we have a predictive passage that is revealed in the Gospels. We looked at Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17, when Jonathan rightly directed us there because of the correlation and the tie, the explanation of this passage in Isaiah. Let me remind you of Matthew 4, 12 through 17. It says, Now when he, Jesus, heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them has light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, some of the language and some of the imagery that we have in Isaiah 9 and even here in Matthew 4 may be a little challenging to understand in the first reading. But there is a beautiful, beautiful message of hope here. We will see this morning that Christ has come. The battle is won. And there is victory, rest, and peace. You know, this is the middle of our Advent series. You've heard us talk about the meaning of Advent. It means coming or arrival. The Advent, series, the Advent season celebrates the first coming of Jesus, his birth. And it also anticipates his second coming when he will put all things right. In that first Advent, Jesus came to establish his kingdom. And through his birth, his earthly ministry, and most significantly, his death and resurrection, that kingdom has been established. But it's also clear that Jesus will come again to banish evil and death forever, to establish his kingdom, and to create a new heaven and a new earth. So we celebrate this first advent of Jesus coming. It has happened, and it gives us hope and anticipation for Jesus' second coming. Now let me give a few sentences of recap of what we've heard thus far in Isaiah 9, 2, 3, and 4. We've seen that Christ has come. Ben spoke to us from Isaiah 9, 2, that the people walked in darkness and have seen a great light. Jesus is that light. He himself declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as Matthew 4 points out, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ has come. The battle is won. Last week we heard, verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Oppression shall cease. Salvation has come 
through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because Christ has come, because the battle's won, we will learn from verse 5, there is victory, rest, and peace. You see, victory in verse 5. Verse 5 confirms victory, ultimate victory. This isn't just a, a stoppage of the fighting. This isn't a withdraw, retreat to regroup and fight another day. There is a finality expressed here in the words of verse 5. Ultimate victory is confirmed because every boot, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We find similar language throughout the Old Testament. Let me point out a couple of these to you. Psalm 46 verses 8 and 9 says, Come, behold the works of the Lord. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The implements of war are destroyed. Why? Because he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 2.4 says, He, the Lord, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They're turned into gardening tools. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So there's no need for boots. There's no need for uniforms, for bows, for spears or chariots. In fact, there's no need to even learn about war anymore. This can only happen through final and ultimate victory. And the epistles explain what the Old Testament predicts. John, uh, 1 John 5, 4 tells us, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now this Greek word overcome can often be translated victory. In fact, I'm not a Greek scholar. I suspect most of you are not Greek scholars either. But you know this word, or at least a variation of this word. Nike. The Greek word Nike. It means to conquer, to have victory, or to defeat. You see, the Greeks believed that real victory belonged to the little g gods. They were the only conquerors. They were the only unconquerable. The Greek, the Greek goddess for victory is named Nike. Jesus uses this Greek word, Nike, in John 16.33, where he says, I have overcome the world. It's a word for victory. Jesus has said, in essence, I have won the battle. It's over. We've overcome. And there is victory over three things. Three things. Victory over sin and death. Victory over Satan. 
and victory over the evils of this world. Victory over sin and death, victory over Satan, and victory over the evils of this world. And that is a joyful Christmas story. Christ has come, but even more joyful is the fact that Christ has come and accomplished what he set out to do in ultimate victory. So immediately upon receiving salvation, the Christian overcomes death. There's victory over death. 1 Corinthians explains this to us in chapter 15, verses 54 through 57. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only do we have victory over sin and death because of the advent of Christ, we have victory over the enemy, Satan. Satan is at war with believers. Revelation 13, 7 says, It was given unto him to make war with the saints. It was given to Satan to make war with the saints. But that isn't the whole story. Revelation also tells us that they have conquered him, conquered Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Romans 13 I'm sorry, Romans 16, 20 adds to this truth. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Isn't that an interesting combination? The God of peace will crush Satan. Those are two words we normally wouldn't put together. But through the first advent... Satan was defeated at the cross. The ultimate battle has already been won. Positionally, he is defeated. Practically, the Bible tells us, we need to exercise continual victory on a day-to-day -day basis over Satan. Thirdly, we have victory over the wor world. And here we're not talking about the physical world. We're talking about the spiritual system of evil in the world. A system of Satan that is also the system of man who is dominated by ambition, by greed, by self and pleasure, by envy and selfish desire. It's by definition a system that is ignorant of God and in open rebellion against God. We, we just read from our bulletin, our statement of faith, that man by nature entirely lacked the holiness that is required by the law of God and are actively inclined to evil. Therefore, they are under just condemnation to a sentence of eternal ruin without defense or excuse. But as I said earlier, there is hope. There's a way to salvation through Jesus Christ who has won the victory on our behalf. And so, you know, through the centuries, 
Soldiers have endured just grueling training and battles and wars to gain victory that is elusive and fleeting. Christians, however, have ultimate victory as overcomers because we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. So you see, Christ has come. The battle is won. There is victory. And there is rest. This fall, our community group on Thursday nights has been studying the book of Judges. Buzz reminded us last week about the story of one of those judges, Gideon. Throughout the book of Judges, we see a repeating story. Over and over, we see that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord was angered and disciplines them through war and foreign oppression. And surprisingly, a long period of time takes place in most of these stories before the people finally say, Lord, help us. We repent. The Lord then raises up a deliverer, a judge, who saves the people. And then lastly, each of the stories ends. And we read at, each, at the end of each story that there was rest. Since we just looked at uh, uh, Gideon last week, the story ends with these words at the end of Judges 8, in verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Psalm 46, which I referenced earlier, provides even a greater message of rest. And I'll ask you to turn there with me. I'm going to read this psalm to you. Psalm 46, it's just a few pages back uh, from where you may have been in Isaiah 9. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still, rest, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Psalm 46 begins with these words. The Lord is my refuge and strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. And it ends with, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob 
is our fortress. That means that you and I can stop our fighting, working on our own strength, and we can rest in him. Psalm 46 was, I think, Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He and his friend Philip would gather together and sing this song in times of trouble as they faced the challenges and persecution even uh, as a part of the Reformation. It inspired his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. No other psalm expresses the tremendous truth that God's presence and his power are with us in all circumstances. We need to know that God offers us two kinds of help. A stronghold into which we can flee and a source of strength by which we can face any uncertain future. This psalm that we've just read is, is divided into three stanzas. And those stanzas are uh, separated by this Hebrew word sila. It's a little difficult to know exactly what it means, but it seems to have been a musical uh, denotation uh, for pause and reflection. So in other words, it might say, pause and think. When the mountains quake, the Lord is my refuge and strength. Pause. Think about that. When the nations are in uproar and the kingdoms fall, the Lord Almighty is with us. Pause and think about that. Be still and know that I am God, exalted among the nations. Pause and think about that. You know, every year brings 365 days of uncertainty. Every hour or every day has 24 hours of potential uncertainty. But every day of every hour of every week, year, God's presence and power in our lives are available to us. That is our source of rest, knowing that God is our refuge and strength. Be still and rest. Know that I am God. I have established my kingdom. So let's remember that Christ has come. The battle's won. We have victory. We have rest. And as we'll see next, there is peace. Isaiah 9 begins with the announcement of change. There will be no more gloom for those in anguish. Why? Because those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus brings to a darkened world grace and truth and the sure promise of peace. Last week we heard that the Lord will break the oppression of the enemies. He draws the analogy to the time of Israel's battle over Midian through Gideon, which is a battle that the Lord won. It will happen again. And the battle and the victory will be much greater. Verse 5 tells us the implements of war will be burned up. No more law of action. It's not a law of action. No temporary peace treaty. The war will end. There's victory over death, over Satan, 
over this world and we will find rest and peace. Do you long for that peace? It's offered to you as a Christmas gift if you put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, peace comes from a personal relationship with Jesus. Romans 5.1 tells us, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll remind you that this morning we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's a familiar carol. And you may not really have paid attention as you were singing. But I want to bring that hymn into a new light. I'm going to connect it here to what we've just been talking about. Because we just sang, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Why? Peace on earth and mercy mild. How? God and sinners reconciled. That's where peace comes from. That's the peace that we seek. Peace with God, to be reconciled with Him. Joyful all the nations rise. Join the triumph, the victory in the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. We also sang, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That is the peace. That is the victory. That is the rest that we can have through a personal relationship with our Lord Jesus. When the light of the Messiah illuminates your heart, the battle's won. You have victory, you have rest, and you have peace in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning I want to conclude with a prophecy and a revelation found in Luke chapter 1. This is Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. We see that in verse 67 of Luke 1. And his father, Zechariah, his being John the Baptist, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and I'm going to read for you uh, in verse 76, And you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way Christ has come. The battle's won. We have victory, rest, and peace.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Creator, and Lord, Judge of all men, Head of a church, Savior of sinners, your, your greatness is just unsearchable. Your goodness is infinite. Your compassion is un unfailing. Your mercies are new every day. Father, we praise you for your salvation. How important and encouraging are the promises and the invitation of the gospel of peace. We lived in darkness. You provided light. We were defeated. You've provided the victory. We are weak, but you are mighty. We thank you for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. He's our refuge, our fortress, our hope, and our confidence. We depend on his death. We rest in his righteousness, and we desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, and his cross fill us with peace. In his precious name we pray. Amen.